All right, Romans chapter 4, back in Romans 4. Looking at the central theme for the way in which God saves people, justification by faith. As we've studied these initial chapters in Romans, Paul has been taking us through the fine points of salvation in detail. How is a person saved? What needs to happen for an unrighteous person to be justified in God's sight? After detailing the fallen condition of man in the first few chapters, starting in chapter 3, Paul uh, made it very clear that justification, being declared righteous before God, has nothing to do with works of any kind. No one can do anything to make themselves righteous before a holy God. To demonstrate this fact, as we've come to chapter 4, Paul has introduced an example from history, someone who is well known as a godly man. He brings up Abraham. And in bringing up his, this example, it's clear that Paul's consideration here is mostly towards those who are of Jewish descent. He's making a point of speaking to those who previously had held to the law. And therefore, using Abraham as an example would have been very appropriate, since none of them would question the righteousness of Abraham. They would look at him as a righteous man in history. In fact, many of the Jews at this time thought more highly of Abraham than they even should have. And I think I mentioned last time that the, the Jews had almost a, a fascination with Abraham. They held him up in about the same regard as you could say the Catholics do with Mary. Um, they saw Abraham as perfect. They saw him as, a, as sinless. They saw him as someone who never really needed salvation in the first place. But even though he's crafting his argument around Jews, the facts that he's presenting here we'll see are true for both Jew and Gentile, the arguments that he's making. So in chapter 4, Paul brings up Abraham as an example of justification by faith. Abraham did indeed need salvation. And it's clear from Scripture that Abraham came to saving faith. Now in the first half of chapter 4, we saw this when we were looking, uh, that was our previous study. In the first three verses, he shows that Abraham believed in God and his faith was credited to him as righteousness. There was no work involved. That didn't mean that God said, when we say that it was credited to him as righteous, or that he believed and it was credited to him as righteousness, that doesn't mean that God looked down and said, oh, he believed. I guess that means that he was righteous after all. No, what it means is that the faith that Abraham put in the promises of God, God used to credit his own righteousness to Abraham's account. Crediting righteousness to a man who just like everyone else had no righteousness of his own. In verses 4 and 5, he contrasted the idea of works versus faith, showing that faith is not a work. We saw that anyone who works for something, puts in any effort, receives what they are owed, which nullifies the very concept of grace. It is no longer a free gift if you have earned it by working. And that's what grace is, right? We saw that back in verse 24 of chapter 3. Justification is a gift by the grace of God, something that is unmerited, something that is undeserved. But to the one who believes, one who accepts that gift, their faith is credited as righteousness. What do they believe? They believe in him who justifies the ungodly, he said. It's important to note that we not 
only believe in the Word of God, but in God Himself. We are believing in God. Believing in what God says and believing in Him, you can't really separate out the two. We'll see this as we go through the rest of chapter 4. We'll see Abraham's faith in detail, and we'll see the, the example of him not only believing in what God has promised, but fully trusting in God to accomplish what it is that he's promised. In verses 6 through 8, Paul showed us an example from a psalm of David of the ones who believe having uh, the blessing of the forgiveness of sins. When righteousness is credited to your account, sins are then removed from your account. These are accounting terms here used. It's the same idea. You owe something, you have debt on your books, right? Um, when a payment is applied to your account, what happens to the debt? The debt's gone, right? It's taken away. The payment has been made. Everyone has sin on their books. Righteousness credited to the account takes the debt of sin away at the same time, and that's the idea uh, with the example he used in those verses. Then in verses 9 through 12, we saw Paul specifically addressing a problem area among the, the believing Jews, the concept of circumcision. Uh, he made the point that circumcision could not be necessary for salvation, as some believed, because Abraham was declared righteous many years before he was ever circumcised. At least 14 years between the time that Abraham was credited with righteousness and the time that God first instituted the rite of circumcision with Abraham and his descendants. So what did that tell us? Well, it told us that circumcision couldn't be necessary for salvation. Why? Well, as he mentioned back at the end of verse 3, there's only one God. And if there's only one God, then there's only one way for man to be redeemed. One God saves people one way. Looking at Abraham, a man who was redeemed by God and was not circumcised when he was declared righteous, we can conclude with confidence that circumcision is not a part of salvation. And that's an important argument even for us today because we can conclude that about a lot of things. That applies to everything. Baptism, church membership, communion, sacraments, any ritual or ceremony that takes place in the church. He can make the same argument. Over time, people have continued to try to add work after work after work to their requirements of salvation. But that's folly. And why is that folly? Because it wasn't necessary for Abraham, and we can look to the example of Abraham. Even today, even thousands of years later, after Abraham lived, we can use the same example. Why? Because the plan of God for salvation has never changed. It will never change. There have been, there have been more and more details revealed over time of what is involved in that plan, right up until the closing of canon of Scripture. But God's plan was never altered. It was only revealed in greater detail. What was necessary for Abraham to be justified? For him to believe God. Justification is by faith and faith alone. Now as we come to verse 13... In Romans chapter 4, Paul will continue on with this same example of Abraham. He's not done talking about Abraham. For the rest of the chapter, we'll continue on with looking at the faith of Abraham and how Abraham was saved. So we'll, today, we'll start by looking in verse 13, but we're reminded here as we start in verse 13 that we're breaking into this whole argument because verse 13 even refers back to what he previously said in the previous verses. So he starts off by saying, for the promise 
to Abraham. And that word for here connects us back to what we were talking about previously. And what did he just finish talking about? Well, in verse 10, he said that Abraham was credited with righteousness while uncircumcised. Then in verses 11 through 12, he talked about him being a father. The father of those who are uncircumcised who have faith, in verse 11, and the father of the circumcised, but not only who are circumcised, but who also have faith, in verse 12. He's talking there about Jews and Gentiles, right? He's making that distinction, circumcised and uncircumcised. Abraham being the physical father of the Jews, but beyond that, in a spiritual sense, he is also the father of Gentiles and the Jews who have followed him in faith. Now to continue with that idea, he says in verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So you see the tie-in here. In verses 11 and 12, he's talking about Father Abraham. What does a father have? Father has descendants, right? People that come after him. Jews and Gentiles. We saw those in, in those two verses. He had descendants who were physical descendants, and he also had descendants who were spiritual descendants or descendants who were like him in faith. Now, what do we have? We have a promise to Abraham and his descendants. So what is this promise that Paul is talking about here? Well, again, to the Jews, to his primary audience, they would be all over this, right? They would recognize the promise to Abraham. But for us in the church, especially for those who maybe aren't as up on our Old Testament readings as we are in our New Testament readings, we might need some help on this. But we're in luck because that's what Sunday school is for. So here we are. This is referring to the promises given to Abraham. This is the Abrahamic covenant and the provisions that are found in that covenant that God established with Abraham back in the book of Genesis. So guess where we're going to go? Turn back to Genesis. Fortunately, we studied through Genesis in Sunday school last year. So for some of you, this will be review. But for others... I want to look at just a few passages in Genesis that show the covenant promises that God made with Abraham so that we can see how it ties in with what Paul is saying here in Romans chapter 4. I want to get this as the background for what we're going to be talking about in the next, uh, actually the last half of the chapter. So back in Genesis 12, we'll start at the beginning here. Um, The Abrahamic covenant is a very important covenant, because really all the other covenants that God makes from there are offshoots of this one. And we won't get into all of those. I don't want to muddy the waters anymore than I have to with this, but maybe we'll do that at another time. But this initial covenant that God made with Abraham is foundational for God's plan on earth. There are three main components that are defined in the promises that God gives to Abraham. And we'll see this as we go through here. There's land, that's defined, there is seed or descendants that are defined, and there is blessing. There's blessings that are given in this covenant, and, that's, and so keep those three things in mind. So this covenant, again, is foundational for how God deals with the Jews, with the nation of Israel, and it's foundational also for how he deals with Gentiles, because there are provisions of blessings in it for other nations as well, for all the nations, and salvation for Jews and Gentiles is based upon the blessings that come through this. 
So we mentioned last week, um, but in Genesis 12, we have when Abraham, or Abram, and, and you understand it was Abram first, and he changed his name to Abraham, and I'm going to use those names interchangeably, so bear with me on that. But when we have, when Abram was initially called, he was first called by God when he was in Ur of the Chaldeans. But look at the very first verse of chapter 12 of Genesis. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the ones who curse uh, the one who curses you, I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So here we have that in, the initial indicators of what this covenant that God is going to make with Abram is going to entail. Verse 1, go to the land which I will show you. There's a land element here. Verse 2, I will make you a great nation. There's physical descendants. There's a seed element. Verses 2 and 3, he says, I will bless you, you shall be a blessing, all the families of the earth will be blessed. There's a blessing element in, this, in these promises, in this covenant. So right off the bat, that's what God tells Abram. These are the first words that we have between God and Abraham, right? This is what God tells Abraham. Now we move through the account in Genesis of Abraham um, chapter 13 and verses 14 through 18, God again will speak to Abraham and emphasize the land and the seed portion of what he told him. Uh, but turn over to chapter 15. There's, there's a lot in Genesis. We're not going to look at every one of them. We'll look at a few here. We looked at chapter 15 last, a little bit last time. This is where Abram tries to help fulfill the heir portion of the promise by saying that Eliezer is his heir, right? Abraham, had, they haven't had a child yet. It's many years later. Abraham and Sarah are still childless. They have no child. So he says, well, I'll pick someone who's in my house, and he'll be my heir. This will help fulfill that promise. But God says, no, it won't work that way. Look at verse 4. It says, then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And here we have our key verse in Romans 4, right there in, in Genesis 15, 6. He believed in the Lord and he reckoned or credited it to him as righteousness. So this is the justification of Abraham. God is promising this to him, and he has faith in God, faith in what God is promising him. And, and, and that's what we see here, but well, we're not going to end there. That's where we ended last time. Well, we're not going to end there, because what comes next is important for the fulfillment of the promise of God to Abraham. Up to this point, this has been a promise, right? God has promised this. He's told Abraham he's going to do this. But in verses 7 through 17... We have God cutting a covenant with Abraham. It's the equivalent of back in those days was a legal contract. He takes a heifer, Abraham takes a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon, and they're all cut in half, and they're laid out on opposite sides. So he would take the animals, and he would lay one over here, and he'd lay one over there, and he would do it for all the animals. It's done for all of them. So the idea was then in a contract situation, and I'm glad contracts aren't done this way anymore, but, but back then this is how they were done. 
But the idea was you would put the half of each animal on either side, and then the parties that were entering into the contract would pass through the halves of the animals. And as passing through them, that's that's why the term cutting a covenant came into uh, effect. But they would bind themselves to the terms of this covenant or contract. But here, what happens? Verse 12, a deep sleep falls upon Abraham. Abraham's asleep, right? He falls asleep after this. Down in verse 17, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed through the pieces. That represented God passing through the animal halves that were laid out on the ground, signifying God binding himself to this contract, these promises that he was giving Abraham. What was Abraham's involvement in the covenant, in the contract? Abraham was asleep. Abraham didn't pass through the pieces. What did that mean? It means that this is an unconditional covenant of God. God made promises to Abraham, and he binds himself to those promises. And there is nothing binding upon Abraham for God to fulfill his promises to him. And you once again see down in verse 18, after he had passed through the pieces, it says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. So once again, in this covenant that that God is talking to him about, there's descendants and there's land given here. Focus is on the seed and the land, two parts of the covenant that we talked about earlier. Now turn over to chapter 17. And we saw this chapter, which we looked at as well, because this is the chapter where Abram is circumcised. And it's also where his name is changed finally to Abraham. But look at verse 1 of chapter 17. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. So here, first, you note Abraham's age. He's 99 years old. And he's still childless at this, well, okay, he's childless with Sarah at this point in time. And yet the promise is still, you will have many descendants. Now God tells him that he will be the father of a multitude of nations, which is still kind of hard because he and Sarah still have not had a child, right? But that's still the promise. God is still promising that to him. And he goes on in verse 6, he says, I have made you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. So you note here, there is still this promise of descendants and land in here. He uses the word everlasting, everlasting covenant, everlasting possession. This is a permanency that he's talking about here, 
right? Physical land, physical descendants. This is stressed over and over again. Abraham is still old. He's still childless with Sarah. And that's the promise of God. And Abraham still has faith in that promise that God is giving him. Down in verse 16 of the chapter, God includes Sarah into this as well. He says that he will bless her with a child. She's almost 90 at this point in time. Back in chapter 11, we were told right off, right when we were introduced to Abraham and Sarah, that she was barren. And yet these descendants will come through her. So God keeps reminding Abraham over and over again that his seed, these descendants, they're coming. They're coming. Even 25 years after first promise to a now 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman. Now again, we'll skip over a few references. In chapter 21, Isaac is born to Abraham and Sarah in verse 12 of that chapter because Abraham also has Ishmael, uh, the son who was born to him through Sarah's maid Hagar. Uh, so God tells Abraham, Abraham in 21.12 that his descendants will be named through Isaac. So that promised line comes down through Isaac. But turn over to chapter 22. Uh, where Abraham, this is the chapter where Abraham has Isaac now, but he's told to go sacrifice Isaac. And he never wavers even when God tells him to do that. But we all know that, we all know the story, right? Abraham, uh, God stops him in time. He doesn't sacrifice Isaac, but he's ready to. He's right there, knife in hand, ready to sacrifice his son, and God stops him. But look down at verse 16 of chapter 22. Here we have another reference to the blessings promised to Abraham. He says in, says in verse 16, and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies." In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So once again, we have multitudes of nations, but also we see the blessings that will come through the seed of Abraham. Two things to note in this that we just saw here. One, your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies as part of the blessings, part of the promise here in verse 17. So there's going to be a time when the descendants of Abraham will have control over those who oppose him. There will be sovereign control, and this will be fulfilled through, um, uh, in the kingdom time, it'll be future aspects of it. But that's part of the promise here. And this will be important when we're in Romans 4, when we talk about being heir to the world, a reference that Paul makes there. And then the other thing to note here is that it says, in your seed, the nations of the earth shall be blessed, in verse 18. And this will also come up in Romans 4 and what we'll see there. How are the nations blessed through the seed of Abraham? Okay, so we're, we're going to stop there. We've went, gone to many different passages here. There's more to look at, but I think that's enough to give us a good picture of these promises, the things that God was promising to Abraham. Over and over again, it never wavers, it never changes. There's more detail given. There's different parts that are stressed at different times but nothing is ever changed or removed from these promises that God gives to Abraham. And it's important to note also that the promise that God gave to Abraham, he also reiterates after Abraham is, is dead um, 
to both Isaac in chapter 26 and then to Jacob in chapters 27, 28, and 32. These same elements of the covenant of the promises are stressed to them as well. So all of these things, land, seed, blessing, were all promised to Abraham. Everlasting, unconditional covenant that God made with Abraham. Now, back to Romans chapter 4. And believe it or not, the plan is to finish chapter 4 today. And I know that we're already well into our hour, but I'm confident that we can do that because a lot of what we need to talk about comes from what we just looked at and these things that we've already been talking about. So what does Romans 4.13 say again? For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law but through the righteousness of faith. So we're reminded here again of the law. Paul brings up the law again and the obstacle that it had become to the Jews in, even in the early church. Paul is continuing on with this argument against the law having anything to do with the promise that God had given to Abraham. What promise was that? Well, that's what we've just been looking at in Genesis. Abraham received the promise that God gave to him, not by keeping the law, but by believing in God. In all that we looked at, in all those passages, what didn't we see mentioned at all? The law was never, not in any of that, right? None of that. Abraham preceded the giving of the law by about 500 years. He lived around 2000 B.C. while Moses was given the law around 1500 B.C. The same argument that he used earlier in the chapter holds true here. If the promise of God is dependent upon keeping the law, then what about Abraham? Abraham never kept the law. Abraham didn't even know the law. He didn't know any of the elements of the law. He was long dead before the law was ever given. Therefore, the promise given by God couldn't have been dependent in any way upon keeping the law. So now, here in verse 13, Paul mentions the promise to Abraham that his descendants would be heir of the world. Remember when we were in Genesis 22, after Abraham had taken Isaac to be sacrificed, we saw that element in verse 17 of God telling Abraham, your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. There's a time coming... When the nation uh, that comes through Abraham, Israel, will be the dominant nation. A time when Israel will be the center of the world. A time when, as Paul mentions here, Abraham and his descendants will be heirs of the world. They will inherit the world. And that is a time yet future. But it's a time which will have literal fulfillment when Israel is restored, when there's a national salvation to Israel... And that's a time that we'll talk about when we get to Romans chapter 11. That's just whetting your appetite for later on. But this phrase that Paul uses in reference to that, again, common knowledge for those who were familiar with the promises to Abraham. So he uses this here in reference to the Abrahamic covenant, those promises given to Abraham to mark out specifically uh, what promises he re he's referring to here in this section. The promise did not come through the law. It came about through faith. It was established on faith. So now we come to verse 14, what we see here. 
Paul continuing on with this reference to the law and this concept of inheritance or being heirs. He says, for if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. His point here is this. If only those who keep the law are the ones to whom this promise is fulfilled, are the heirs that he's talking about here, then it's not based on faith, but it's based on works. And in that case, the promise is no good. Why would it be no good? Because no one ever kept the law. If God had made the promise to Abraham conditional upon the people keeping a set of rules or instructions, or if it was, as was mistakenly thought, contingent upon law-keeping, keeping the Mosaic law, then he may as well not have made it in the first place because it was an impossible condition. We've seen this already multiple times in Romans. The keeping of the law was never possible because keeping the law was something that had to have been perfect. And any violation made you a lawbreaker, a transgressor. And that's the point here in verse 14. Keeping the law was impossible. And therefore, if that was a requirement for what God had promised or what God had intended for Abraham, then that promise would be nullified if only those who kept it were the heirs of that promise. And Paul explains why in verse 15. He says, for the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. Again, here, people misunderstand what the purpose of the law truly was. It was never meant as a means of salvation. It was never meant to be able to justify anyone. It was never a works-based system to gain righteousness before God. What was its purpose? He says to bring about wrath. It was a way to reveal what God's standard of righteousness was and to show mankind that he could not measure up to it. No one could. It revealed sin. We saw that back in verse 20 of chapter 3 where he said, Because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law gave the knowledge of what was right and wrong so that there was no more question. Commandments were clearly laid out. 613 commandments of the law were clearly laid out. And he clarifies at the end of the verse when he says, but, there, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. Now, with this phrase, we need to be careful. Because he's not saying that without the law, there was no sin. He's not saying that there was no sin before the law came into effect. He's saying there's no violation. There was plenty of sin before the law came in. The earth was destroyed by a flood to purge it of sinful men before the law ever came. But what he's saying here is simply that the law gave specific things that were not known before, now that they're revealed. So that when one would go against what was revealed, they could readily see that they were violating what God had said. And an example of that, later on in the book, in chapter 7, verse 7, Paul will tell us that he would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall not covet. He's not saying there that coveting, that coveting wasn't a sin. It was always a sin. But the law made it black and white. So now anyone who did it was violating that specific command that God had regarding coveting. So with the law, all the doubts, all the gray areas 
they all became black and white. What before wasn't known to be sin was now clearly shown to be sin. He'll go on in the next chapter in verse 20, Romans 5, to say, The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And sin increased, but with the increase in sin came the increase in grace. And we'll get into the details of that when we get into chapter 5. A lot sooner than we'll get to chapter 11, which I mentioned earlier, but we'll get into that in the next chapter. But the first step in salvation is recognizing your sin recognizing your need for a Savior. And once you've seen that, then the acceptance of the salvation of God is truly revealed as grace. The law pointed the way to the need for a Savior, to the coming of Christ. So his point in verses 13 through 15 is continuing on with with this theme. The works of the law had no part in the promises of God to Abraham. Those promises and the blessings that are realized in those promises come on the basis of faith alone. And that's exactly what Paul turns to when we come to verse 16. He says, For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace. As we've been saying, or as we've been seeing since verse 21 of chapter 3, it's by faith in accordance with grace. The provision that God promised Abraham was an act of his grace. Him promising this and binding himself alone to it was God's grace. It was a gift. Once again, a very important connection here, grace and faith together. Grace necessitates that the blessings that come through the promise to Abraham is by faith. If it's not by faith, then it can't be grace. Any attempt to add works to it is an attack on the grace of God. If you add works, then it's something that you can boast in, right? If God says, well, I'm going to give this to you freely, and you say, well, but I did something to contribute to that. Now you're stealing from the grace of God. Back up in verse 4, what did we see there? He said, now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. This word favor, to remind you, is grace. That's the same word. Getting something for a work that is done is not grace. It's not free. It's what's owed. So adding works to the grace of God nullifies grace. It ceases to be a free gift. And this isn't difficult to understand, right? If somebody walks up to you and hands you $50 just out of the blue, somebody you don't even know, not expecting it, not asking for it, they just come up to you and say, here, $50. And then they walk off. That's a gift, right? That's a free gift. You did nothing for that. But if they hand you the money and they sit there and smile at you and you say, oh, wow, thank you. And they say, okay, can you give me a ride downtown now? All right, now it's no longer a gift. Now they're hiring you for a job, right? And they're giving you money for that. Even if they bump the value up to $10,000, they write you a check for $10,000 and say, take me downtown. It's not, you know, it's not worth $10,000, but they're still asking you to do something based on that. It's no longer freely given. But that's the, so that's the same thing here. The fulfillment of the promise is by grace through faith and faith alone. No works at all contribute to the grace that God has provided. 
How does this make a difference? Well, he goes on in verse 16. He says, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants. And this goes back to who had the responsibility in the promise. God had the obligation because God obligated himself. This made the promise guaranteed. It was certain. It's not dependent upon the works of sinful man in any way. We already saw that man was unable to keep the law. And if the fulfillment of God's promise was dependent upon his ability to keep the law, then the promise was doomed in the first place. But being only dependent upon God, that makes it guaranteed because it's an act of grace on God's part. Now, guaranteed to whom? To all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, he says. We see here Paul make the statement that shows Abraham to be the father of us all. Those who are under the law, who we've already talked about multiple times as being Jews, those of Israel, but not only to them, also those who are of the faith of Abraham, something he just talked about back up in verses 11 and 12. So that he might be the father of all who believe without, ha- without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. He's once again equating the descendants with not only those who are Jews being under the law, but also to those who are his descendants by faith, who have come to salvation the same way as Abraham, regardless of their nationality or background. All Jews are physical descendants of Abraham, but not all Jews are spiritual descendants, because not all Jews will believe. All believers are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, whether Jew or Gentile, even though they are not all physical descendants of Abraham. That's part of the blessing aspect of the Abrahamic covenant. Anyone from any nation will be blessed if they believe in the saving work of Jesus Christ. So at the beginning of verse 17, he once again backs up what he's saying with an Old Testament quote. Genesis 17, 5, which we looked at earlier, he says, As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you. Paul is using this in reference to the spiritual aspect of Abraham being the father of many nations. Now, we need to be careful with this. Because that's not to say that there wasn't a real physical aspect to this as well. There was a physical land, area of land, promised to the physical descendants of Abraham. And we've seen that already. That was true then. And this doesn't nullify that. That's what some want to do with this verse. I bring this up because some people take this and they say, well, this points to God's plan changed. Yes, he promised this this way in the Old Testament, but they say, well, this changed God's plan, and that's what this is pointing to. They say that it's not a physical promise, and now it's only a spiritual promise, and that Abraham's people are simply believers, and that there is no physical aspect to the promises at all, and that that doesn't matter anymore. That's what they would say. But we need to understand that later revelation never cancels out or changes previous revelation. Abraham understood this to be a physical reference. Isaac, Jacob, 
His son's grandson understood this to be a physical reference because that was stressed when God was saying this to them, promising this to them. Sarah certainly understood this to be a physical reference. She was the one having the first baby that made this all possible. The nation of Israel for 2,000 more years understood this to be a physical, physical reference, have a physical aspect to it. So as Paul gives us further understanding into a spiritual aspect to it as well, it may clarify what was given before, but it doesn't change it. And we're seeing through here how it's possible. The Gentiles receive blessings in this the same as the Jews. And he's careful to continue to make distinction between Jew and Gentile even while showing that the provision for salvation is is applicable the exact same way. By grace, through faith, for those who are in either group. So keep that in mind. We're not changing the details of the Abrahamic covenant here. We're getting a fuller understanding of what comes through the Abrahamic covenant. So after this Old Testament quote... Paul continues on in verse 17 with the statement that he was making in verse 16. So if you go back a little bit in verse 16, he says, So that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. So the guarantee here is based on the promise of God, which we've been talking about, the faithfulness of God's promise. But the application of it comes about when Abraham believed God, believing in what God revealed to him. As God told him all all of this, in the passages that we looked at and more, he believed it right there on the spot. He believed it as God was telling this to him. So again, that's how it's applied. It was applied through faith. Now at the end of the verse, we have Paul's description of God, right? He, he talks about these aspects of God, and this will be relevant for what he's going to talk about in the coming verses. But this is based on the faithfulness of Abraham that we'll see um, that's coming. What does he say about him? He says, God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And here he is showing Uh, this specific aspect about God, the one whom Abraham believed. And he shows two things about him here, which are pertinent to the context. He gives life to the dead. When God promised Abraham descendants, he was somewhere close to 75 years old. By the time God gave Abraham the son of promise, Isaac, Abraham was 100 years old. For all intents and purposes, Abraham's body was dead, as was Sarah's, which we'll see in the next few verses. They were getting past the age where they could have children, Sarah especially, and yet the promise was still there. Even to these people who were past that age, the promise was still there. And the second thing he says is he calls into being that which doesn't exist. And I believe this is in the same context as the first statement. I don't believe Paul has switched over to talk about creation here. I think he's talking about God's ability to take Sarah's lifeless womb and Abraham's 
shriveled up 100-year-old body and produced through them multitudes upon multitudes of descendants. This is the God in whom Abraham believed, placed his faith in, what Abraham rightly believed about God. This is who he was trusting in. Okay, now we come to verse 18. I know we're getting close. Now we come to verse 18. In the next several verses, Paul reveals the faith of Abraham and expounds upon the simple phrase that we read before, that Abraham believed God. What was it like for Abraham to believe? What was going through Abraham's mind, you could say, when he believed? In these verses, 18 through 21, his faith is shown so clearly, and it's revealed to be truly remarkable. It says in verse 18, In hope against hope he believed, so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. So Paul quotes again here from the Old Testament, Genesis 15. First off, in this verse, it says that he believed against hope. In spite of overwhelming human evidence to the contrary, Abraham believed that God would make him a father of many nations. He had hope against hope. It was, he was believing what seemed to be unbelievable. No one in their right mind by human standards would think that Abraham and Sarah could produce the line of descendants that would become heirs to the world. Years went by between the time that God told him he would have descendants to the time that Isaac was finally born. And yet Abraham believed it even when he was getting old, even when his wife was getting old, he still trusted in God's promise to him. And he goes on with this line of reasoning in verse 19 then. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since it was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Here we see he wasn't weak in faith. He was, even when he contemplated his own body, he knew how old he was. He knew what he was capable of. A hundred years old. Sarah was 90 years old. Even then, his faith was not shaken. He kept on believing the promise of God. Even when most people would have discounted it long ago, Abraham still trusted in what God had told him. So after years of hearing it and years of his body growing older and weaker, his faith remained strong. And in fact, verse 20 tells us that it actually increased. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. He didn't waver. This word means he wasn't divided in his faith. He didn't go back and forth. He wasn't believing some days and not believing other days. God said it. Abraham believed it. There was never doubt in his mind that God would fulfill this. In fact, it says his faith grew strong as time went on. How many of us would be able to say that? I, put, I try to put myself in Abraham's situation. You know, as we pray for things, as the days go on, right, we have something that's on our mind, we're praying to God for something, days go on, weeks go on, months go on, years go on. Does our faith actually get stronger? Maybe. I think most of us would admit that after a few days, we would probably start to grow impatient, restless, wondering whether or not God was even listening to us. 
but having faith that is unwavering, that grows stronger. That's what Abraham had. That's the type of faith that he put in the promise of God, in God himself. You know what that faith does? It gives glory to God. That's what Paul says here. It's trusting in him. It's glorifying to him. Why? Because it's all about him. It's not about us. Abraham wasn't sitting there trusting year after year that he would be able to do something. He was trusting that God would be able to do this. As we trust and believe in him on a daily basis, as we never waver in that trust, hopefully we never waver in that trust, it's because he's the God who is worthy of our trust, worthy of our faith. Here, it's Abraham having that full confidence in what God has said and trusting that he is able to do what he promised. I look at the example of Abraham as well, um, you know, and I look at all the times in my life that God has been faithful to provide for me in every area. And it makes me wonder, you know, when I look back at all the things that God has provided for me, why do I worry about things today? Why do I suddenly think today that He's not going to provide. He's provided for me for my whole life. Why would I suddenly think that I should be worried about this problem today? It shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that way for me. It shouldn't be that way for any of us. We need to have that same type of unwavering faith that Abraham had in God. Look at verse 21. We're going to do this. We're going to do this. And being fully assured that what God had promised he was able also to perform. Abraham was fully assured that God could do what he had promised. This is what faith is, being fully confident that God can do what he says that he will do. Keep in mind, we're not talking about blind faith. We're not talking about closing your eyes and hoping for the best, and I sure hope this is going to work out. That's not what the picture is here. This is trusting God, trusting in the one that it said earlier, gives life to the dead, brings into being that which does not exist. There is assurance in him because of who he is and what we know that he can accomplish. After Isaac was born, what did God have Abraham do? We, talk, we mentioned it earlier. Right? He tells him to go sacrifice his son. He waits years and years and years and years, 25 years for him to finally come. And then he tells him, oh, go sacrifice him now. What about the promise? If he killed Isaac, how could the promise be fulfilled? Abraham was confident that God would fulfill it. Do you know what the book of Hebrews says? That when Abraham was told to kill Isaac, it says in Hebrews eleven nineteen, he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. He still was assured that God would fulfill his promise. He would simply have to raise him from the dead, I guess. That's all he'd have to do. No big deal. I'll kill my son. God will just have to raise him from the dead. Remarkable faith. So in these verses, Abraham has hope against hope. His faith wasn't weak. His faith didn't waver, but actually grew stronger. And he was fully assured that God could do what he had promised. So then we come to verse 22. Therefore, it was also credited to him as righteousness. That faith that Abraham had was credited to him as righteousness. Paul is putting the bookend on this passage, this example about Abraham. 
That's the significant little verse of Genesis 15, 6 that Paul had quoted back up in verse 3. Abraham's faith in God and the promise that he had made to him was credited to him as righteousness. Faith and faith alone. All of these things in this example from Paul about Abraham, nothing here about what Abraham did, nothing about what Abraham earned for himself. It's all about him believing in what God had promised to him. So that's the example of Abraham, the one who is the father of our faith, in that he was the first one in which the Bible says faith was credited as righteousness. We talked before, he wasn't the first one saved, but he was the first one with that specific distinction, and the one through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed, that that promise was made. But now that we have seen Abraham's example, Paul doesn't stop. Right? He doesn't tell us about Abraham so that his readers can remember a 2,000-year-old at the time or a 4,000-year-old at our time Bible study, uh, Bible story, but so that we can see how the example of Abraham has application for us as well. What does that mean for people today? What does that mean for people that believe God today? Well, look at what he says next. It says, verse 23, not, Now not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sakes also, to whom it will be credited just as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Now Paul comes back to the point that he left off with prior to giving this example of Abraham, what he was talking about in the last half of chapter 3. How can anyone who is, who is as unrighteous as was made clear in the previous chapters, how could anyone be credited with righteousness? And the answer is right here. Righteousness was credited to Abraham through faith, and righteousness is credited to us in the same way. Abraham believed in the promises of God, what God had revealed to him at that time. What do we believe? The same thing but with more information. We believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. What did it say Abraham believed? Way back up in verse 17. Him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead. Again, Abraham didn't know about Christ's work on the cross, but he knew that God gave life to the dead. He believed that God could resurrect his son if he sacrificed him in obedience. Abraham's faith in God was credited to him as righteousness. And now today, the same applies. We work, or we believe in the work that God has accomplished on our behalf in his son. We believe that God is able to save us, take us from our unrighteous condition, credit us with the same righteousness that Abraham was credited with, and make our situation with God whole and complete, just like Abraham's was. We are to have the same type of faith of Abraham. Faith today and faith 4,000 years ago is no different. We believe and we trust in God and in what God has done and what God has provided. But today, as Paul was pointing out in chapter 3, we know more. Look at verse 25. He's talking about Jesus our Lord who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. Jesus was delivered up because of our transgressions. 
Because of our sins, he had to pay our penalty with his own life. There was no other way to pay it. We saw that back in chapter 3. He provided the redemption, the spilling of blood. He was the propitiation, turning away the wrath of God by satisfying God's requirement for justice. He took our sins upon himself. But because of our justification, he was raised. It wasn't enough for Christ to just die for our sins. He also had to rise again. The penalty was paid in his death, but justification, the crediting of that payment to our account, is made possible through the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that if Christ hadn't been raised from the dead, then we have no hope. We are all, we are all men most to be pitied. If Christ had died and stayed dead, if he hadn't been raised and the promises of God were a lie, then we would be believing in a lie that would have no saving power. But he did rise. And because he rose again, we are justified. His payment can be applied to our account, and we can have eternal life with him. Abraham looked forward to this, to the promise of God and believed. He knew that God was going to provide blessing. He knew that God was going to provide descendants. He never saw all those descendants. He had some kids, but he didn't see multitudes of nations, but he believed in what God had promised him. He didn't see all of those blessings, but he knew that God was going to provide it to his descendants and through his descendants. We don't look forward like Abraham did, but we look back. We look back to the cross, to the resurrection of our Lord. That is the pivotal point in all of history. It is how mankind is redeemed. It is how we are saved by putting our faith in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. So from the example of Abraham, I hope this is clear to us all. Justification is by faith and faith alone. Abraham had faith. It was credited to him as righteousness. His sins were wiped away. His account was made new in God's estimation. For us today who place our faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, salvation comes the same way. Believing in that alone, believing in God, in his provision for us, not in any work that we have done or that we will do, but only in the work that he has accomplished on our behalf. 